You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. All right. So this, uh, as you kind of heard this morning or maybe heard throughout this week, um, so the next three Sunday nights, kind of leading up to that members meeting that we have coming up, uh, we're going to spend some time thinking through a, a series called Worship by the Book. And I think there's a book called that same title, so I, I didn't unintentionally plagiarize it. But, uh, but again, I think it kind of captures what I hope will be the heart of this series, um, because one of the things that we didn't get a ton of time to teach on during the summer is just why we worship as we do as Redemption Church. And so you, you might have noticed that, that Perhaps we worship a little differently than a lot of evangelical churches. Some things are similar. Some things are a little different. And and we wanted to take some time to really explain why we worship as we do. And bless you, by the way. Uh, And we wanted to really take some time to dive in and think through that together. um, Because one of our kind of core values as a church is intentional worship. Meaning that whatever we do when we gather for worship, we want to be intentional and why we are doing it. We don't want to just do things because we're doing them, right? We don't want to just do things because the the church down the street is doing that. We want to be really intentional in thinking through why we do anything that we do when it comes to the corporate worship of God's people. And so we have been intentional in thinking through that, but we haven't necessarily communicated to you necessarily why we do all that we do. Why do we do the Apostles' Creed? Why do we read so much of the Bible? Why do we not have special musics? Why do we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday? These are, these are questions that maybe you've thought about, um, and there's, there's reasons for why, why we worship as we do. And so this series is really going to try to take a step back. These are things that I have been thinking through and pondering, particularly the last couple years of my ministry, uh, thinking that so much of modern evangelical worship needs a reformation, uh, kind of a return to what does the Bible say we ought to be doing as worship. And of course, a lot of this is driven by my, my own interest in the history of the church and my own study of the history of the church. And one of the things I just began to realize as I studied church history, as I studied the Word of God, just how much of what we do in evangelical worship today is relatively new uh, in the grand scheme of things. And so it kind of forced me to really think through, well, what does the Bible say about how we are to worship? What can we learn from the tradition of 2,000 years of church history, history both positively and negatively, about how the church is to worship together. Because I think churches today are very confused about what the purpose of corporate worship is. They might not realize they're confused about it or not, but, but there are. There's lack of clarity. Many don't really think very carefully about their order of service. You know, it's kind of something you just kind of inherit. Somebody came up with it 60 years ago, and we don't question it, right? And we definitely don't tweak it at all, right? It, it stays the same. Thinking that, you know, this order of service we've been given has been, been, you know, dropped out of heaven itself. It's kind of the way people talk and think about these things. And few people ask the hard questions and, and the hard questions of what are the biblical and historical foundations for Christian worship. And so that's kind of what this series is going to try to do over these next few weeks, is I want to try to unpack some of these things I've been wrestling with and thinking through. And so kind of as you think about what this, 
the, the driving conviction behind this series is really the idea of sola scriptura. Again, if you know a little bit about the reformers and what, what was going on during the Reformation in the 16th century, you'll know that that was kind of a, a motto that emerged of Scripture alone. And I'm convinced that this motto, that Scripture alone, is not just important for the Christian life, not just important for other aspects of the life of the church, but it's actually critical in terms of how the church worships. And I think this principle, sola scriptura, applies to worship, the corporate worship of the church, as well to anything else to the Christian life, when it comes to justification by faith, to doctrine, to theology, but also to how we worship as a church body. So kind of the conviction that drives this series, if you kind of wanted to write this down, this is what the next three weeks is really going to be about, is the conviction is, and the conviction I want to try to convince you of, if you're not convinced of it already, is that worship in the church should be governed and regulated by the Scriptures. That worship in the church, what we do as we worship together, and the church should be governed and regulated by the Scriptures. And so keep in mind that as we think through the next three weeks, we're not talking about like personal worship with the Lord. We're not talking about living your life as a life of worship. That's, that's an important topic we could think through. But the next three weeks on Sunday nights, we're thinking through corporate worship, like what we're doing from 10.30 to, I think how long the preacher was today, uh, to, to, to lunchtime, right? Um, to, you know, that's, that's corporate worship. That's what we're talking about these next few weeks as we think through this. So again, that conviction, worship in the church should be governed and regulated by the Scriptures. So tonight, I want to kind of go over the imperative of worship, the biblical and historical evaluation of Christian worship. And as I was preparing this and even working on it a little bit this afternoon, um, I am not terribly optimistic. I'm going to get through all I have planned tonight. <laughs> so it might kind of spill over into next week um, because I do want to honor your time. I do want to finish up by, by 6 o'clock. Um, but my plan is to break tonight's message up into the biblical overview of worship. And literally, let's, let's go to the Bible and see what's going on there in terms of corporate worship. And then I want to step back a little bit and look at kind of the history of Christian worship. And it's going to be a very quick historical overview of just how, how does the Christian church historically worship. And then over the next few weeks, we'll start talking kind of the nitty-gritty about different aspects of worship, elements of worship, and, and dive into those a little bit more. So let's think through this biblical overview together. And so starting from the beginning, starting from Genesis, right, we see that God creates the world. And as God creates the world, he creates his human beings, man and woman, Adam and Eve, as kind of the, the vice regents over the world that he has made. We're called to, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And, and it's interesting that as we think through this, one of the things we learn throughout the Old Testament, beginning in the Garden of Eden, but we learn that God created the world for his glory. That the world, the universe, isn't about you but it's about God and His glory. And so worship is a key part of why we exist. In fact, I, I think it's the, the reason we exist is to give worship, honor, and praise to God. And so as we think through the, the world that God has made, we think through verses like Isaiah 43.7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. In other words, all of us, you, me, one of the key purposes we exist that God made us for is for his own glory, for the purpose of worship. And so corporate worship then is, 
is then vital as we think through what it means to, to worship together as the people of God. And so this gets into larger questions of, of why did God create the world? And again, we could spend a lot of time here, but this is something in which a, a, a figure from history I'm particularly fond of, Jonathan Edwards, thought about quite a bit. In fact, he wrote a, kind of a treatise called The End for Which God Created the World, which thinks through that question, why did God make what he made? What's the purpose of the world? And Edwards makes a point in that, in that document there, that, that this uh, treatise that he wrote, and he makes the point that God does not need our worship. I think that's important as we think through what it means to corporately worship God together. Let me read what Edwards had to say. He said, God had no manner of need of us or of our praise. He has enough in himself for himself and neither needs deeds, neither needs nor desires any additions of happiness. And if he did need the worship of his creatures, he had thousands and ten thousands of angels, and if he had not enough, he could create more. So what's kind of Edwards' point? Well, he, he's commenting on this important biblical concept that the invitation to worship, as God invites you and I to worship him, that invitation isn't born out of divine necessity. In other words, God doesn't need you to worship him. He doesn't need me to worship him. God isn't lacking in praise as if he needs you to sing louder in order for him to be happy. God is completely happy within himself. But rather, God exists as a community of praise, uh, a fountain of unceasing joy and happiness. And even if God did need praise, Edward says, then he certainly doesn't need you or I to do it. He has thousands of angels, tens of thousands, and if he needed more to expand the heavenly choir, no offense, he's probably not picking a few of you right for that choir. Right? He doesn't need us. He could create more angels. So all that to say, as we think through the creation of humanity, the creation of the world, God's invitation for us to worship him, this is an act of God's grace that he invites us and makes us to worship him. And it's, it causes us to praise him as we think about the great mercy he had, not just in creating us, but redeeming us for the purpose of worship, for the praise of his glory. And think about the great cost that God endured as he sent his son into the world, as Jesus died in our place, so that we might have not just the responsibility of worshiping him, but the privilege of worshiping him. You see, worship is a privilege. It is not a divine need. It is not a, a right or a mandatory but this is a privilege that God creates us and he redeems us for the purpose of worship. So that's interesting as you think through Genesis. We don't have a ton of time to go into this tonight. But uh, guys like Desmond Alexander, who's kind of a biblical theologian, and Old Testament scholar, we got one of his books out there, kind of more of those, those more entry-level books. Uh, I forget what the name of it is, but I'll point it out to you afterwards if you're interested. But he makes this, uh, this biblical exposition as he looks at Genesis and he sees that the Garden of Eden is described in the language of like a proto-temple. In other words, that part of what's going on in Eden is God is creating a sanctuary in which he places his human creatures to worship him. And he makes a, a really persuasive and very powerful argument as he thinks through that idea of worship and temple and the place of worship. And he takes it from Genesis to Eden all the way to the New Jerusalem. And it's a fascinating uh, 
a work of biblical theology, which is worthwhile to read, but it gets back to this principle of worship. So as we move on from the Garden of Eden, of course, the human beings fall into sin. Adam and Eve rebel against the Lord. There's separation from God. We're removed from the place of worship as now we are alienated from God due to our sin. And as we see the God's calling of Abraham and as we see the law given in the Pentateuch, particularly through Moses on Mount Sinai, we see these, these cultic practices. And by cult, I don't mean like some strange thing. I just mean the, the, the practices of the people of Israel and how God commands them to worship. And as we see these, these practices of, of building the tabernacle, of having, having these layers of the tabernacle, of separating the holies of holies in the center of the tabernacle, again, we don't have time to go into all the way the, the tabernacle was designed tonight, but it's interesting that all of that, those, these practices that God commands his people to do communicate holiness, the holiness of God, and our distance from God because of our sin. And so you see over and over again that, that, that human beings can't just go into the presence of God anymore because of sin. Sin alienates, it separates it, and there is a series of steps the people of Israel must take in order for them to approach the presence of God. That's what the tabernacle is all communicating. And you see that in places like Exodus 24, 1 through 2. Let me read this for you. You don't have to turn there. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. In other words, because of sin, and as we look at the Old Testament, there's this separation between us and the Lord. That emerges after Genesis 3, where the, the angel, the cherubim, Swings that flaming sword, right? Genesis 3.24, and guards uh, the way to the tree of life. In other words, after sin, there's separation. Worship becomes impossible if it wasn't for God's intervention and grace and bringing us near to him yet again by his redeeming love. And we see that these Old Testament practices communicate that. Even Aaron, who was the high priest, right? Even he had to purify himself before he could enter into the mercy seat within the Holy of Holies. Leviticus 16, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And so again, as we think through this Old Testament uh, practices of worship, again, a lot of them have been fulfilled in Christ. And it's important to remember we don't need a tabernacle. In fact, the place of worship really isn't important anymore, as we'll see from, from John chapter 4 and just a little bit in the New Testament. But rather that principle, what that all those Old Testament uh, cultic practices were meant to illustrate is that we are far from God in our sin, alienated, hostile, condemned, and it takes an act of intervention of God's grace of atonement for us to be able to enter into the presence of the Lord and worship him. And again, we see, particularly as you look at the New Testament, how Jesus is the one who fulfills all of this, right? He is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, right? Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, what Jesus does is he, he, he makes the tabernacle obsolete. He, he's the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. And because of Jesus and by his blood, we can now freely come into the presence of God with confidence. Not with fear of death, but with confidence because we've been redeemed in Christ. And so we see this idea of holiness and distance. It finds its, its resolvement, its reconciliation, so to speak, in Jesus himself. But in the Old Testament, we also see a couple other dangers in terms of corporate worship that we have to, to be aware of. These are themes that kind of run throughout all the Old Testament scriptures. And one of those is the dangers of formalism. The dangers of formalism. One of the things the people of Israel were constantly tempted to do is thinking, God just wants me to go through the routine. He doesn't really care about my heart. right? As long as I go and give the sacrifice, do what I'm supposed to do, follow the law, right? then it doesn't matter if I'm actually repentant, sorry for my sin, actually broken over my sin, actually care about worshiping the Lord. As long as I'm going through the routine. And the Lord is constantly, over and over again, through the prophets, rebuking their, the people for their cold, dead, formal, disengaged hearts when it comes to worship. Let me give you a few examples. Isaiah 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, Because His people draw near with their mouth and honor Me with their lips, while their hearts are far from Me. And their fear of Me is a commandment taught by men. Another passage, Malachi chapter 1, 10-11. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Their sacrifices in vain, worthless. They're not, they're not worship at all. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, the Lord says the Lord of hosts. So again, we see that the Lord is concerned about the hearts of the people engaged in worship, which again has a huge application for us as we think through corporate worship, that we can come in and go through the motions all day long, but that doesn't mean our worship pleases God. We might get the right order of worship, right? We might, we might be committed to letting our scriptures be driven by the word of God, as we should, and as we're going to talk about the next three weeks. But even still, if we have a sinful hardened, rebellious heart, cold and dead and lifeless, then it doesn't matter what, how faithful we are to the Scriptures in terms of what we do. Our worship will not be pleasing to God. The forms matter. Yes. And that's, I'm actually kind of the main argument of this series is that what we do in worship is important. We need to think about it intentionally. But just as much so is that our hearts are engaged in our worship as well. The two should go hand in hand together. And so as you think through the rest of the Old Testament, um, you see lots of things happening. Um, you see prayer. You see uh, the reading of the law in corporate gatherings of worship. You see singing. And so a lot of these Old Testament elements of worship, like prayer, scripture reading, singing, uh, we see those very much affirmed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. And these are a lot of things we do today, right? So you have congregational singing. Right? The book of Psalms is a hymn book. Right? Those are songs that people sang. So we see the command in Psalm 9:11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion, tell among the people his deeds. We see scripture reading in the Old Testament as well. Nehemiah 8, 2 through 4, right? That 
that dramatic scene that sounds like so much about what we do even this Sunday morning. Let me read it for you. Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And skipping down to verse 8, it says, They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And that's expository preaching straight out of Nehemiah chapter 8, right? A guy reading the Bible, standing on a platform in front of God's people, explaining the sense. What does this text mean? Reading it and explaining, right? So again, we see that very much affirmed in, in the New Testament in terms of how we are to worship. And of course, we see prayer all over the place in the Old Testament as well. And, and the, uh, an event that came to my mind was 1 Kings 8 when Solomon is dedicating the temple of the Lord. And he stands up before the people of God before the altar of the Lord, in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands towards heavens and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And then, of course, the prayer goes on. But he's standing in front of God's people. He's praying. Again, very much affirmed in the New Testament as well. So again, we see these elements of worship formulating even a lot of the cultic practices of sacrifice and temple a lot of that is, is fulfilled in Christ. A lot of these things are just picked up and, and carried on in the New Testament and carried on even in our worship this morning. But one more thing that I think needs to be addressed as we think through the Old Testament in terms of worship, and again, we could go a lot more in depth with this, but I think this is a point that needs to be stressed, another key theme that we have to identify, and that's the seriousness of worship. The seriousness of worship. And again, there's two episodes in the Old Testament that reminds us that we can't come to God with frivolity. We must understand that we must fear the Lord as we come to worship Him, and we must worship the Lord as He commands us to worship Him. God doesn't just say, oh, just worship me however you feel like. No, God, God tells us how we are to worship Him. So let me read about Uzzah and the ark in 2 Samuel 6. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and uh, castanatas and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down because uh, uh, there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Again, uh, what, I forget what R.C. Sproul said as he uh, expounds upon this passage, but he said, you know, Uzzah's mistake was thinking that his hand was cleaner than the dirt, right? And so as he steps out and grabs it, touching the ark, which was forbidden, he dies instantly because of his failure to worship the Lord properly. Nadab and Abihu and the unauthorized fire from Leviticus. You might remember that. Let me read that for you. This is Leviticus 10, 1 through 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. In other words, they didn't, they didn't make a sacrifice that God had commanded them to sacrifice, uh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. 
So again, we see from these passages of severity in which God literally kills people for worshiping him wrongly, it reminds us that even though God doesn't kill us wrongly for worshiping him wrongly all the time, but it does show that there is severity and seriousness when it comes to how we are to worship. It's not okay for you to just kind of, oh, I would like to do this to worship God. No, God, God has prescribed certain ways we are to worship him. And we should listen to what the scriptures say, has to say on that matter, and follow them carefully. So again, as we summarize, what do we learn about worship from the Old Testament? We learn a few things. We learn that we were created for the purpose of God's glory. So therefore, corporate worship is a privilege and it is our purpose. We've learned that the Old Testament teaches us through the sacramental system that we are distant, separated from God, we're defiled by sin, and, and can only worship God as a distance unless we are brought near. We are brought near through Jesus himself. We also see that God instructs us how he is to be worshipped, and we are to take that instruction very seriously. So again, much will change in the elimination of the sacrificial rituals in the New Covenant Age. Again, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. We see these important elements that we talked about, like Scripture reading, preaching, prayer, congregational singing. All of that was happening in the Old Testament and continues explicitly as we look to the New Testament and the worship of the church there. So again, we're not going to get to the history of worship at all tonight because I've got uh, about 10 minutes to think through the New Testament and worship. First, so let's kind of move transition to the New Testament for a moment, and let's think through a couple key passages that help us think through worship. So one of those uh, is is John chapter four, which again is just such a, a fascinating passage. You're welcome to turn there if you like. John chapter four. Uh, we're going to look at verse 19 through 24. But you remember this is Jesus's interaction with the woman at the well, and again this uh, this is a counseling session like no other counseling session as Jesus just begins to just uncover this woman's heart in ways that she is not prepared for him to do. And it's just absolutely beautiful to watch uh, sometimes the ruthlessness of Christ, but also the tenderness and sweetness of Christ towards this woman. But anyway, uh, but there's something here to be said about worship as well. And, uh, and, we, and, and again, there's lots of applications from this passage, but it's interesting to see uh, what, what goes on here. So look at John 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where our people, where people ought to worship. It's interesting that this woman's defense mechanism is to enter into a theological debate with Jesus about where the right place is to worship. And so, uh, and so that's what she's trying to do here. And look at what Jesus said to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Again, we could spend a lot of time thinking through that passage. But it's interesting that, that Jesus pretty much says the time has come where where you worship doesn't really matter anymore. <laughs> in other words, it used to be in the Old Testament that, yeah, you had to go to the temple. You had to make your sacrifice. It was incredibly important that you were at the right place. But in this new covenant age, what matters is that you worship in spirit and truth. So you can worship at a school building like this one, or you can worship at the back of a dance studio. The place doesn't matter. What matters is are we worshiping in spirit and in truth? There's this decentralization in terms of corporate worship that happens in the new covenant age. And Christ, as Jesus himself, is the fulfillment of the temple, of the tabernacle. 
We also see the book of Colossians. You can turn there real quick if you'd like. Colossians 3, 16 through 17. As Paul's uh, giving encouragement to the church to, to put off their sin, to put on the righteousness of Christ, he gives us this little jewel of wisdom in terms of thinking through uh, kind of what the church's worship looks like. And it's incredibly beautiful to read and, and think about this together. Colossians 3, 16 through 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So again, I think this is such a huge passage, not just for guys like Chris, you know, who lead worship in song on Sunday morning, but it's important for us in terms of just thinking through what's going on as we sing. And why do we sing? One, we're commanded to sing, right? This is a part of the church, church's worship. We get together to sing, but we, as we let the Word of God dwell in us, as we're teaching, as we're admonishing, singing is a part of that. Singing is, in many ways, an extension of teaching one another the Scriptures, which is why we are so intentional about the types of songs we sing here at Redemption Church, songs that are truth, songs that are theologically robust, songs that encourage us in our faith, encourage us in the truth, songs that, are, that, that reorient our attention off of ourselves, like so many worship songs have, like they've got the navel-gazing problem, right? The, all worship songs about me and my and what's going on in my life. And, and we're singing songs that say, no, it's not about me, it's about God, right? And we're looking towards Him. That's part of why we, we sing as we do, because we want to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. But part of the extension, the way we do that is by letting the Word of God dwell richly in us. And so we see singing as an extension in many ways of, of part of what we do as we are teaching and admonishing one another with the truths of God's Word. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, is another important passage in terms of thinking through the orderliness of worship. 1 Corinthians 14, 26-33. You can turn there if you'd like. And it's interesting, the Corinthian church was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? I mean, they, they, had, a lot, they had a lot going on, right? And it's, it's interesting, I always am a little bit shocked when I hear that a, a church has decided to name themselves Corinth Baptist Church. I just want to read, you know, have you read the New Testament? Because I'm not sure you want to be associated uh, with all the problems the Church of Corinth had. And one of the problems that they had was a worship problem. In fact, what was going on there is people were, had these different spiritual gifts, uh, particularly the spiritual gifts of tongues, and it was just getting way, way, way out of hand to the point where it really wasn't about worshiping the Lord, it became about the individual. It became about me using my gift, not really about worshiping the Lord, and things got disorderly and chaotic. And so Paul kind of says, chill out a bit, right? And there needs to be an order to the worship. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as is as in all the churches of the saints. And again, it, it kind of continues on there. 
But again, we see this idea of orderliness of worship. And again, we're not going to try to untangle whether tongues is something that continues today or not tonight. Uh, we'll maybe tackle that at a different time. Uh, but again, it's interesting to see here, right, that, that Paul says things need to be done orderly, right? He even kind of gives a little order of service. It has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. In other words, there, there needs to be an orderliness to the way we worship. We don't just come in and necessarily wing it every week and say, all right, who wants to do something today, right? No, there's kind of an orderliness and intentionality, right? An intentionality in terms of how and why we worship. Um, another key passage, right? Acts chapter 2, where we see some of the, the worship going on in the early church. And, and you can turn there if you'd like, or I'll just read it briefly. But Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And it's interesting, this is right after Pentecost, right? Right after Pentecost, the church literally uh, came into existence, 3,000 souls, right, were, were added to their number that day. And we see what was going on. What did, what did the life of the church look like together? And again, this is something, of course, we want to aspire to as a church, but it's, it's a lot of what we're doing, right? We're, we, we teach, we get together, we're breaking bread, we're taking communion together, um, and we're, we're living life together as we're submitting ourselves to the Word of God. And so again, we see so much of, of Christian worship here uh, in action in the early church. And of course, we, we kind of, as we look to the book of Revelation, the Revel book of Revelation is such a beautiful book about worship. And again, I think that's so often underemphasized as we, again, try to pull out like our revelation charts and try to figure out the end of the world. But there's so much there to encourage us in terms of just what it means, means to worship Christ exclusively and, and give praise and honor to him. So this is one of my favorite passages from Revelation 7, 9 through 12, as John is uh, having this vision. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Again, as we look to what that day will be like when Christ returns, as we look to the end of the age, we see that the, the reason God created the world, the reason he made it was for his glory, and he created us for the purpose of worship. And as we look to the very end of the age, we see that purpose come to fruition and consummated in a, a beautiful way in which all the nations, all the peoples of the earth are gathered together before the Lamb, before, before the throne, before the Father, before the Son, clothed in white robes, singing, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. And so Christ is the center of our worship. He is the point. He is the one in, to whom our affection should be drawn towards. And again, I think that's such a huge rubric as you think through, did we worship well this morning? That's a question we have to ask. Because when people leave worship and they go to, to lunch each day, Probably the average Christian is thinking, well, she kind of sang off key today, right? Or, you know, that's, man, catch those technical difficulties. Or, man, that pastor was really funny or he, or he was engaging or, oh, you know, he, you know, he wasn't so much so, right? And we begin to, like, critique worship like it's a performance. Or we begin to be captivated by the people on the stage. 
And if that's ever happening, then, then we've really failed in terms of gathering to worship on Sunday morning because the point of worship isn't Chris, not me, it's not anybody who's going to be on that platform. The reason we're up there is we're trying to direct you to Christ. He is the one who gets the praise. He is the one that gets the honor. Our goal is not to impress you. Our goal is to be used by the Spirit of God to encourage your hearts to worship Jesus alone. And we want to do that through the way God has prescribed us to worship Him because guess what? God's way works better than our way, right? That's what we believe. So as the Scriptures say, we need to do things like read the Bible together when we worship. Well, we're going to read the Bible together when we worship. When the Bible says we need to, to sing together as a congregation, admonishing one another with hymns and spiritual songs, well, that's what we're going to do. And if we need to pray together, well, we're going, to, we're going to make prayer an important part of our church. And if we want to center our worship on the Word of God, then we are going to read it and we will explain it. And we will want to hear from what God has to say through His Word. And so again, it goes on and on, right? We want God to set the agenda for what we're gathering. And again, there is some freedom and flexibility of how you arrange that stuff. And we'll get into that in the weeks to come. But again, that core way, this is the way God has prescribed us to worship Him. And it's the way that's most effective in engaging your heart to truly focus on Christ. So again, I, I don't think I got past through what I planned on tonight. Um, but that's okay. Next time, I'll try to give you a, a more of a historical overview of Christian worship. Uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of a teaser. Uh, we are going to begin in the patristic era, uh, kind of right after the New Testament. And we'll talk about kind of how worship in the New Testament kind of morphed into the Catholic Mass. That's kind of what happened over about a thousand years. And we're going to talk about some reasons why that happened and, and, and some things that were going on there. And then we're going to talk about the Reformation. The Reformation was important, not just in terms of its recovery of the true gospel, of justification by faith, of sola scriptura, but it also brought a lot of reforms to worship. And so we'll talk a little bit about the way the Reformation and its theology began to change the way the church worshiped on Sunday morning. And then we'll get into kind of uh, that tradition a little bit. We'll think through uh, the Anabaptists and Zwingli uh, over in uh, Zurich, and we'll think about the Puritans in England and kind of some ways that they've taught us to worship. And we'll also begin to think through how the First and Second Great Awakening in the United States have begun to impact and shape uh, our worship today. And so we'll talk about uh, how recent history of uh, revivalism with D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, how a lot of those practices kind of were brought into worship on Sunday morning. And we'll also spend a little bit of time next week thinking through the seeker-sensitive movement, particularly in the 80s and the 90s, and, and even around today a little bit, and how that, I think, has negatively uh, impacted the corporate worship of the church. So that's just a little taste, right, so of, of what you will be in store for if you come back next week. And so let me close this in prayer, and, uh, and thank you for coming tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful, Lord, that we have the privilege of worshiping Him and worshiping Him alone. And Father, we pray that as we think through what it means to worship corporately together as your church, Father, we pray that everything we do would be in accordance with your word and that everything you would, we do would be profitable, profitable for building up your church. And Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment in terms of how we are to worship you rightly and properly. But Lord, above all, we pray that we would not only just have the right forms of worship, right practices of worship, but Lord, that our hearts would be engaged each Sunday as we love you, as we cherish you, as we delight and rejoice 
in the good news of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, God, and King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.